Usually this sermon is preached around Thanksgiving time, so as you hear me preach today, you may think, Kevin is completely confused. This is Memorial Day, not Thanksgiving Day. But we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? And as Dusty has mentioned, the numbers of people through the years who have sacrificed themselves for our freedom, we are so grateful to them. Guidepost Magazine over these last several months has featured articles about soldiers coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan and the hardships that they've endured, the, the, their injuries, the sacrifices that they have made. Many of these soldiers' lives have, have been affected to a point that they will never be the same. And their families have been affected as well. Their sacrifice should not go unnoticed. We have a reason to be a thankful people. The text that we're looking at today is of a man who was thankful to Jesus for something that Jesus had done for him. And Jesus, in turn, commended him for his grateful spirit. You might want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, spending some time going verse by verse through this particular story, beginning with verse 11. It says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, this is Jesus, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. I I want you to note that phrase, while he was on the way to Jerusalem. What was he on his way to Jerusalem for? He's going to die. Okay, that's the reason he has come to this earth. He's going to fulfill the plan of God as he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to become the sacrifice for our sins. He knew what laid ahead of him. He knew what the religious leaders were going to do to him. He had been telling his disciples for quite some time what was about to happen. The teachers of the law would have him arrested. They would mock him. They would abuse him with their fists. They would whip him. They they would cause much suffering at their hands. They would finally take him and they would crucify him on a cross. Jesus knew all of this that was going to happen at Jerusalem, and yet he was still going there. He would not be sidetracked from his mission. That's why he came to this earth to begin with, to become a sacrifice, to be a ransom for our sins. I want to go back for just a few moments. We'll leave chapter 17. You keep your finger there. I want to go back into Luke's writing and the earlier chapters and just see the emphasis upon how Jesus was consumed with this mission that was before him. Go back to chapter 9 of Luke, verse 51. It says this, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That word determined means to be steadfastly set. He was unshakable in his mission. He was headed to Jerusalem and nothing was going to stop him. Look at chapter 13 of Luke's writing, verse 22. It says this, And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. He's preaching as he is going. And he's doing good as he goes, but his primary mission 
is to get to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. It's starting to sound familiar, isn't it? This idea of him heading to Jerusalem, he knew what awaited him there. He knew, though, that this was the plan of God. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. What was he passing through to? He's heading to Jerusalem. He's getting closer. Jericho is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Look at verse 28 of this same chapter. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was fixed on getting to Jerusalem. But he wasn't so fixed that he couldn't stop for just a moment and help somebody along the way. Look back to chapter 17 of Luke, verses 12 and 13, we're going to see this is one of those times that as he is going towards Jerusalem, somebody's crying out to him for help, and he's got the time for them. Chapter 17, verse 12. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Leprosy was a terrible, terrible disease to deal with. Probably the most terrible disease of Jesus' day. It was an infectious skin disease. I have a couple of pictures that I found on the internet. This is what leprosy does to a person. It's a a dreadful thing. I have another picture. Uh, Actually, as, as one has leprosy over a period of time... Leprosy actually is an attack against the nervous system. And so as you wound your hand, as you hurt your hand, you can't feel it. And so you don't give care to those wounds. And over a period of time, you would, this person who has leprosy begins to lose his, his extremities, his fingers, his toes, his nose, just his extremities. He's not taking care of them because of this disease. If you contracted leprosy, you had to leave your family and friends. This was an incurable disease outside of a miracle of God. You had to leave your home, for you were now regarded as unclean according to the Old Testament law. In fact, if anyone came close to you, six feet or closer, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean. No one could touch you. No more hugs from your family. Most people actually would run the other direction from you. They were mean towards you. They would say things against you. If you got too close to them, they would pick up rocks and they would throw those rocks at you. You you could not go to the synagogue to worship God. You couldn't go to the temple to worship God anymore because you were unclean. You were an outcast of society because you had leprosy. 
All of your opportunities for worship were gone. Opportunities to be with your family were gone. Holiday times with family members and those that you love, all of that was a thing of the past. It's interesting here in this text that a Samaritan who has leprosy has connected with nine Jews who have leprosy. And normally, you wouldn't see a Samaritan and Jews spending time together. They hated each other. And it was, it was one way and the other. The Samaritans hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. But in this case, they all share the same miserable fate. And so their prejudice is laid aside and they are finding camaraderie with each other. Note, I did not say they are finding comfort in each other because I don't think there was any comfort with this disease whatsoever, but at least they have found some companionship. We are talking about a very dreadful, hopeless disease. And these 10 lepers, they are standing at a distance from Jesus, just as they were supposed to do, and they are crying out to him, for mercy. Could I take just a moment to mention to you that there are people all around us who are in difficult situations and they are in need of God's mercy. And sometimes God wants to extend His mercy to those people through you and me. He wants us to be His hands and feet. This summer... Our church is again going to feed the kids around Fort Scott who don't have enough food to eat. These kids are on free lunches through the school year, but as summer comes, they don't have access to those school lunches. And so several churches around the town are taking a day and providing these kids with lunches. Our day is on Thursday. We need you to help us. We, we, need some, we need some of you to give money towards this outreach, uh, towards to cover the cost of the food. We need bodies. We need volunteers who will come to the church and, and help prepare lunches on Thursday morning. And we need folks who will help take those lunches to, to Buck Run, where they are then distributed to these kids. I think they serve 90 kids a day who are on this program. We have an opportunity among us to show mercy to the kids right here in our area and show them the love of God. We're asking you to step up and help in that way. There's there's all kinds of ways that we can show mercy to those people who are around us. I challenge you to open your eyes and your ears and God will alert you to those opportunities that are there in front of you. One of our college graduates, Colby Allen, was ordained into the Christian ministry a week ago today, and he and his wife, Megan, are getting ready to go to downtown Chicago and start a church there. Now think about that challenge. Colby's willing to take that challenge on. He's having to raise his own support to do that. I would bet that if we listen close, some of us might hear The children of Chicago, downtown Chicago, crying out for mercy. And God might use you 
to step up and respond to that need. Now, it doesn't always have to be in the form of money. There's all kinds of opportunities that you can give mercy to those people who are around you. You can go to the hospital or to the nursing home and show mercy to people by visiting them. Taking some time out of your day and giving your time and your love to those people. You could get involved in the sharing buckets ministry or or the beacon or or mother to mother here in town. And through those opportunities, through those ministries, you can show mercy to people who are in need. Maybe you can get involved in the neighborhood cleanup projects, the efforts there. Volunteer to take a meal to somebody who's just getting out of surgery or maybe they've lost a loved one. Take a meal into their home. Show mercy to them. Just recently, this week, we've had uh, a couple of of our church members pass away and another whose mother has passed away. In fact, over the last few weeks, we've had at least three that I can think of whose parents have passed away. Let's show mercy to these people. Call up a young couple and volunteer to babysit their kids so that they can just have a night out together. How about send a card to someone who's lost a loved one to death? How about make a phone call to someone who lives by themselves and just talk to them? If you are open to God's prompting, he will lead you in the way that you should go in showing mercy to other people. But I am Fully sure of this. Not only are there people around you who are crying out for mercy, I am also sure that God wants to use you to show his mercy to other people. These lepers needed God's mercy. As we read the next verse, we see that Jesus was willing to show them mercy. Look at verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. It's interesting they weren't healed until they obeyed Jesus. Now, he could have healed them right there on the spot. We know that. He had done that many other times with other folks. But this time, he didn't do it that way. He simply told them to go and show themselves to the priest. So what did they do? They immediately responded in obedience to Jesus. No questions asked. No demands that he heal them right there on the spot. They simply did what Jesus told them to do. Their going to the priest was an act of faith in itself. According to Leviticus chapter 14, if a person was healed of leprosy, he was to go to the priest and be examined and declared clean. So these lepers who were going to the priest upon Jesus' instruction to them, they were going as an act of faith, and as they went, they were healed. I'm thinking of another leper who was healed as he obeyed the word of God. Can Can you think of another leper from the Old Testament who was healed upon obedience to the prophet? His name was Naaman. 
Now, his story is in 2 Kings chapter 5, but I will tell you, Naaman had to be coerced to obey. He was the captain of the Aramean army, and he was a leper. And I got to thinking, now, now how's that work? Because as we read about lepers in the New Testament and most historical documents about this, they're talking about lepers being removed. They're being isolated from society. I had a footnote in my Bible there in 2 Kings chapter 5, and it said that outside of Israel, lepers were not necessarily isolated. You know why? Because Israel had all of these laws about uncleanness that were given to them through Moses. These other nations, they didn't have these laws of God towards them. And so that's why in nations outside of of Israel, possibly, that that lepers were not removed from society. Such was the case with with, uh, Naaman. He was a leper, yet he's the captain of the army. The Arameans, while in a raid, had kidnapped a little girl from Israel, and she had become a household servant of Naaman's. Verse 3 of chapter 5 in 2 Kings says that she says to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. (laughs) Don't you know that got Naaman's attention? Long story short, Naaman ended up on the doorstep of Elisha crying out for mercy. What did Elisha say to him? He said, go to the river Jordan and dip yourself there seven times in the water and you will be healed. Naaman didn't have the same kind of response of obedience as what these ten lepers did in Luke 17. Naaman, I think, expected something more than this. He expected for the prophet to, to raise his hands and to do something gigantic for him and to, to, to call out on the name of his God and perform a miracle in his presence. He didn't expect to be told, just go to the river and dip yourself seven times and you will be healed. And because his expectations were not met, Naaman went away in a rage. He said, why, we've got rivers back home that are cleaner than what the Jordan is. He was missing the whole point. The prophet of God was looking for him to obey. If he would obey, he would be healed. Naaman was fortunate that he had some people with him who were wiser than what he was. They calmed him down and they said to him, Listen, had the prophet told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Go to the river and wash and be clean. Just do what he says. And so, verse 14 of that chapter says this, Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Wow. What a great day for Naaman. And what a great day it was for these ten lepers in Luke chapter 17. As they obeyed in faith, 
they were healed. And I think there's a lesson for us if we'll see it. God is looking for obedience from each and every one of us. He wants us to have the kind of faith that says, whatever you want me to do, God, you just tell it to me and I will do it. I I wonder, do we have that kind of faith which leads us to obey Him? If He says to us regarding salvation, if He says, I want you to repent and be baptized in my name, will we do it? In response to him, will we obey him? If he says regarding our finances, I want you to put me first in your finances. I want you to tithe of your income. And if you will do that, he says this in Malachi chapter 3. He says, if you will bring the whole tithe into my storehouse, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour forth a blessing upon you until it overflows. I'm wondering, do we have the faith that would lead us to respond in obedience to God? How about this? If he says, I want you to forgive those who have offended you. I want you to let go of your anger. I want you to let go of your bitterness. And if you do, I will pour my grace upon you. I will forgive you if you forgive others. He does say that in his word. I wonder, do we have the faith that will lead us to do what he tells us to do. There is always a blessing waiting for us if we obey him. Back to Luke 17, verse 14. It says, as they were going, they were cleansed. Can can you imagine the, the praise and the joy that they must have felt as they realized that their leprosy was gone. You saw that text in 2 Kings chapter 5 when Naaman dipped the seventh time and came up out of the water. It said that his flesh was like that of a little child. And I'm thinking the same would have been true for these lepers as they're going towards the priest. One of them notices... Their flesh was clean. Their flesh was restored. Maybe their fingers were restored. The pain was gone. They had been healed of the disease that had imprisoned them for so long. The disease that had enslaved them, it was now gone. The chains from that disease were broken. What a glorious day. Praise the Lord. Let me read to you verses 15 and 16. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, the feet of Jesus, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Mark it down. In your mind, only one out of the ten turned back to give thanks. And the one who did turn back was not the one that you would have suspected. He was a Samaritan, the text says. 
Was this bothersome to Jesus? The one who had given them this special gift? Yes, it was bothersome to him. Let me read to you the rest of the story, verses 17 through 19. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Two things that are obvious in the text here from Jesus. First of all, Jesus expected them to have a thankful spirit. And he appreciated the one who did have a thankful spirit. He commended the one who came back to him to give thanks. The second obvious point here from this text is he was disappointed over the ones who did not turn back and give him thanks. He, in fact, said, where are the other nine? Were there not ten cleansed? When we fail to give thanks, he notices that. And so my challenge to you today would be simply this, that you and I would be found to be with the one rather than with the nine. That we would be a thankful people. I was reading in a book this last week, the author's name is Wayne Cordero, and he's talking about how the church as a whole needs to have a thankful spirit. Let me just read to you a paragraph from his writing. He says, I believe God is more concerned about being grateful than just about anything else. He's more concerned about our being grateful than about any than almost anything else. He says, a spirit of gratefulness is developed whenever we pause to notice a rainbow or refuse to rush past a sunset. When we take the time to notice, we feel arising in us a deep appreciation that wasn't there before. We are again reminded that we are surrounded by things we don't deserve but have been given, but have been granted nonetheless. God's artistry artistry is not limited to the beauty of a rural countryside. It is evident everywhere if only we will stop to notice. Gratefulness is discovered when we remove the hurry from our lives and listen to God's voice in a situation. Did you note that last phrase there? I got it on the screen for you. Gratefulness is discovered when we remove the hurry from our lives and we listen to God's voice. If we could just take that truth home with us, And live by that truth. Because we are a part of a fast-paced society. We are so fast-paced that we oftentimes will forget to see the blessings that are lavished upon us. Brothers and sisters, we need to slow down. We need to open our eyes and see what great things God has done for us. And we need to give Him thanks. Now what I want to do... For the remainder of this time, we've got about seven minutes. I want to set up this microphone, and we've got a microphone over there, and I want to give to you an opportunity to come up and speak in the microphone a word of thanksgiving. Okay? We ought to have a line 
standing, and the reason I'm wanting you to speak into the microphone is because I want everybody to hear you, and I want you to limit what you say to just a few words, just a couple of sentences. Thank God that he's giving me healing. Thank God that he's given me a family. Thank God that he's given me, and you give him thanks publicly. Would you come? Don't sit there. Would you come? Please, somebody. Let's have a line. What's God blessing you? Give public thanksgiving to him. We've got a microphone over here, too. I thank God for his patience in answering prayers over the long haul. Amen. I'm not thankful for him lowering this microphone. <laughs> I'm thankful for the life of Michael Gilchrist. Uh, and uh, the, the, the rejoicing that he is having today in heaven. Amen. I thank God for his goodness and kindness and mercy that he has shown me all my life. Amen. Connie? I want to thank God for my family. I'm thankful that God is with us every single moment of every single day to comfort us and to abide with us. Amen. Thank for this church uh, and what it means to me. Others come. Others come. I'm thankful for the wisdom of uh, the physicians who worked on me about a month ago because I was going to go in for a stint and, of course, wound up with quadruple bypass. So uh, they blessed me, and God blessed me to push me into having that taken care of. Amen. I'm thankful for this church and all the people that have welcomed me here. Amen. I want to thank God for all the times that he healed me and brought me through many sicknesses. I thank God for the blessings from the hailstorm last year. Amen. I thank God for the, his word and how you can just read it and get deeper and deeper and deeper. Amen. Others come. Others come. I would like to thank God for the wonderful guidance that he's given me in my life. Every time that I have a decision or a um, new path to follow, he's always been there to give me wisdom and strength. I thank God that he loves me and he will never leave me. Amen. I thank God for healing. I've been four years cancer-free. Amen. Amen. I thank God for healing also. I had some serious back problems, and he's healed me, and I've been healed for close to 50 years. And, and I thank God for your family. Amen. Thank God for looking out for me and everything with my back and my trouble with my hands getting sweaty. And I hope I make it through the night all right. And I love this church, and I wouldn't go anywhere else. And the preacher is the best preacher you could ever find. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, God, for my parents. Bring that guy back. <laughs> I'm so grateful for God's love and mercy and grace, his guidance, his guidance, excuse me, and his, this beautiful church, my family, just very grateful. I thank God for his watch over me in my time in this service and the many trials and troubles that I've had. I don't know that I could ever thank him enough for his watch care over me. I thank God for my church family and my grandkids that my church family is helping me raise. 
I want to thank God for a miracle that he performed a while back. Our son, Rick Sharp, has been fighting pancreas for over getting close to here. And they told us that his pancreas rotten. It was destroyed. But come to find out, there's enough living parts that he won't become a diabetic. Amen. Amen. Thank God for my family um, that adopted me six years ago. Amen. What are you thankful for? Well, faithful for me, Is God good? Yes, he is, isn't he? God's good all the time, isn't he? We love you, Jean. I saw it. I've been very late last week. <laughs> I've been busy, busy, busy. There, go ahead. Thank you, God. All right. God bless you, Jean. God's still in the business of doing miracles, isn't he? And so many others could have stepped up, and I, I know every one of us have something, several somethings that we can give thanks to God for. You had 10 lepers who were healed miraculously. One came back and said, thank you. May we be with that one in that attitude of thanksgiving. Let's pray together. God, you are an awesome You are a gracious God. May we never take your grace and your gifts for granted. Help us. Help us to be a thankful people. Help us to slow down and see the blessings and take the time to say thank you, knowing from where those gifts have come. Jesus' name.